Heavenly Father, we love You, and we're glad to be together as a family. Uh, it's good, Lord. Your Word tells us when uh, brothers and sisters gather together in unity. And uh, today, Lord, we, we come together, we're, we're glad to see one another, to be encouraged uh, by each other's presence and the opportunity to, to worship, to hear testimony of wonderful praise, and now to read and study Your Word. It's a privilege. It's an honor. And we're blessed, God. And we know that there are uh, so many places where these things just cannot happen. Where people, uh, Christians, cannot gather freely. Cannot meet together as we meet now. Without fear of oppression. Without fear of suppression by their government. Fear of jail, even death. So God, we look around this nation and we say thank You. Thank You, God, for all that we have here in the United States. We pray, God, that we would be diligent to be grateful, but also to protect what we have and to preserve it for our children and our children's children. So God, as we consider now uh, the topic of America, and what You might say to America in a time and an age such as this, I pray, Lord, that You would, uh, by Your Holy Spirit, give us a lot of wisdom, a lot of grace, a lot of insight into knowing just how we, as citizens of heaven, but also citizens of this nation, can affect it for Your kingdom. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Psalm 33 Beginning in verse 4, Psalm 33, beginning in verse 4, for the word of the Lord is right, and all His work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Verse 8, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord brings the counsel of nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. It's the counsel of the Lord that stands forever. The plans of His heart to all the generations. Blessed is the nation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people He has chosen as His own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the place of His dwelling, He looks. He looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He, he fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. And a mighty man, he is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. But behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope 
in His mercy to deliver their soul from death, to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our hearts shall rejoice in Him because we have trusted in His holy name. Let Your mercy, O Lord, be upon us just as we hope in You. A few months ago, uh, Billy Graham, still alive and kicking, uh, wrote a letter to all of his uh, supporters, an open letter really, to all of America. Um, the title of the letter, he, he titled it, My Heart Aches for America, and I wanted to read you a portion of it. This was dated July 24 of this year. He writes, Some years ago, my wife Ruth was reading the draft of a book I was writing. When she finished a section describing the terrible downward spiral of our nation's moral standards and the idolatry of worshiping false gods, she startled me by exclaiming, quote, if God doesn't punish America, He'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. If God doesn't punish America, He'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Graham goes on to write, I wonder what Ruth would think of America if she were alive today. In the years since she's made that remark, millions of babies have been aborted and our nation seems largely unconcerned. Self-centered indulgence, pride, and a lack of shame over sin are now emblems of the American lifestyle. Yet the farther we get from God, the more the world spirals out of control. He closes, My heart aches for America and its deceived people. The wonderful news is that our Lord is a God of mercy and He responds to repentance. In Jonah's day, in Jonah, the, the prophet's day, Nineveh was the lone world superpower. Wealthy, unconcerned, and self-centered. And when the prophet Jonah finally traveled to Nineveh and proclaimed God's warning, people heard and repented. I believe the same can happen once again, this time in our nation. It's something I long for. Billy Graham went on in other places of that letter to list a number of current elements in our nation, more than which he, we mentioned here, uh, that troubles him. He, like so many of us, as we, as we open up our newspaper, as we turn on the TV or, or surf the internet for just a moment of time, uh, he, like so many of us, is troubled to find an America that is becoming increasingly unrecognizable from generations gone by. And if all we did was to bury our head in the newspaper, if all we did was to bury our minds in the television set or the computer screen, we would probably become very depressed individuals. That is why the mid-20th century theologian Karl Barth wrote this on your outline. Take your Bible and take your newspaper 
and read both, but interpret newspapers from your Bible. Which is to say, whatever you see around you, whatever you see in the newspaper, on TV, on the computer screen, on the internet, make sure you take that information and filter it through God's Word to find answers. Make sure you take that information, at times very depressing and disheartening, and remind yourself of the hope that we yet still have here. It is on account of the climate of this nation and the world, coupled with uh, and inspired by Karl Barth's admonition back in the late 60s, that we've endeavored upon a, a short sermon series. I've entitled it, The Word in the Newspaper. The Word in the Newspaper. We've gone through part one, where we talked about Israel. We've gone through part two, where we talked about the nations that neighbor Israel. And we're going to be actually digging into that just a little bit more next week. But today, we're setting aside time to talk about what the Word might have to say to America. The timing of today's message is uh, deliberate. Today, across this nation, thousands, thousands of Christian pastors and churches are participating in what's being called Pulpit Freedom Sunday. And I admire much of this effort and believe it is important for pastors and churches to speak freely on the issues of the day. But I'm also concerned that some pastors and churches on this day will enwrap themselves a little too tightly in the realm of politics. You go home at the end of uh, today's gathering and turn on the TV, you're surely going to find a number of news stories in which pastors have been highly antagonistic. You'll read of major religious leaders across the country who right now, as we speak right now, will go to their pulpits and will go with the purpose of endorsing a political candidate by name from the pulpit. I'm told that many pastors today have committed to actually videotaping or, or audio recording the message and mailing it to the IRS as a means of uh, provoking what uh, has been known as the Johnson Amendment in which churches are prohibited uh, from publicly endorsing a political candidate or, uh, or speaking for or against a political candidate. Endorsements by name, intentional provocation of the government by the church, uh, such things, in my opinion, are beneath, far beneath, actually, the high calling of the church. As one man has put it, lasting change, lasting change, comes not from political parties, but from the power of the Gospel. We don't put our hope in a man or in a government. We don't put our hope in a party or a system. We put our hope in Christ. And we are citizens of that heavenly country, first and foremost, by faith in Jesus. But even as we are citizens of a heavenly country, by faith, we are also citizens of this nation. And as such, the Bible asks us and admonishes us, really, to consider certain things when it comes to our own leaders and nations. And so today, I'm not going to name candidates by name. I'm not going to endorse a political candidate. I think, uh, again, that's, that's beneath what the calling of the church is. But we are going to speak about issues 
we are going to speak about um, issues of the day, current events in America, and what we've dealt with in our history, and what God's Word might have to say about it. But three things as we begin on your outline. How are we supposed to respond to our leaders? How are we supposed to respond to our nation? God, guide America, we're asking in this part three. Show us what, what do you want us to do. Some simple things to begin. Number one, remember that we're to pray. Pray for our leaders and our nation. Paul writes, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplication, prayers, intercession, giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Pray for our leaders. We do that here. In fact, on your bulletin, we make it a point to leave at the top a prayer for our national, state, and local leaders, for our judges, for our president, for the Congress, for our governor, for our representatives. We make it a... a, a and, and Ray prayed also today for those very things. We make it a point here at Coast to pray for our leaders, for wisdom, for insight, for prudence. We must always continue to do that, regardless of who is in office or what policies are being enacted. God can change hearts. He's changed ours. He can change our leaders' hearts too when He needs to. But we need to beseech Him for it. Secondly, we need to submit to our leaders. Submit to our nation. Were you to read Romans 13, verses 1-7, through you would find a biblical ideology of citizenship. And it is very much, especially around the time of Paul and Christ, it was a time in which you obeyed. You paid heed to the governing authorities. They were the law of the land. And you were to respect them to respect their ability to uh, rule over you, to enact laws, to exact taxes. They are, according to Romans 13, God's minister, God's servant. God describes the office of government, the office of the king, the office of the prince, of the leader, as a servant of His. To execute wrath on those who do evil, and to praise those who do good. And so we're to submit to our leaders and to our nation. But that submission is not to be blind. It's not to be whatever the leader says. There are many instances in the book of Acts early on where Peter and John looked at the authorities that were over them and said, I'm sorry, what you're asking me to do violates my conscience. And so while I know there might be a penalty for this, I'm going to obey God and not you. We saw that in Iran with Pastor Yusuf Nadarkhani, who we prayed for for years. Pastor Yusuf looked at the government of Iran and said, I'm sorry, I'm not going to deny my Christian faith. The Iranian government demanded that he deny it, demanded that he renounce the faith, and he refused. He said, I have a higher calling. Come what may, you can... You can uh, Execute me. You can imprison me. Come what may, I will not renounce. Thank God He was released. And we also, I, I might add, need to pray for the Muslim lawyer who represented him. The Muslim lawyer who represented Yusuf, Pastor Yusuf Nadarkhani is now imprisoned 
by the Iranian government because of his sympathies uh, toward those of the Christian faith. Um, a remarkable man indeed, and uh, cer- certainly this man uh, has insight into what it means to have religious freedom. So pray for Yusuf Nadarkani's lawyer now, now that our, the, our pastor friend has been released. But we are not to blindly submit to our leaders in the nation. There are moments where we need to pause and say, wait a minute, what's going on? What's happening around us? And that leads me to the third point there. We need to evaluate our leaders and our nation. Evaluate our leaders and our nation. You say, well, Pastor Neil, you had a Bible verse for prayer. You had a Bible verse for submit. Where's the Bible verse for evaluate your leaders and your nation? You're right. I don't. I don't. I do not have one listed there. I don't have biblical support. Oh wait, read all of Kings, read all of Chronicles, read so much of the Old Testament in which the prophets of God were constantly, constantly admonishing kings, the kings of Israel, as to whether or not they were walking in the ways of the Lord, or whether or not they were leading the nation astray. I don't list a verse here because there are too many to list. All throughout Scripture, the prophets would admonish the king. In today's terms, you might say the pastors, the teachers, the churches are to hold up and evaluate and to at times when needed to scrutinize and to call out leaders when they go astray. But also when they do good, we're to praise them. We've done both uh, from here. Uh, I remember uh, praying, praying, praying that uh, Health and Human Services uh, Director Kathleen Sebelius would reject a, uh, a motion um, to put abortion-inducing birth control on the shelves for little girls to buy. And thank God she rejected that. It had gone through a number of different elements through the government. It got all the way up to Kathleen Sebelius' desk and she had the power right then and there to put an an abortion-inducing pill on the shelves at CVS Pharmacy and your minor, your your 14-year-old daughter could buy it. Your 12-year-old daughter could buy it. And yet she rejected that law. We publicly praised her for that right here. And yet there have also been times where we've publicly admonished our leaders and said, oh, wait a minute. You're transgressing the law here. You're abjugating your authority and we've called it out. And so while I'm very much uh, not in favor of endorsing candidates for office, I think the Scriptures are replete with instances of both praising the leader when he or she does well and admonishing and calling out the leader when he or she transgresses what God would have them do. In the spirit of the Apostle Paul, we gather today to pray for our nation and its leaders, to reaffirm our willingness to submit to the law of the land. But in the spirit of the prophets of old, we gather today to consider the spiritual state of our union, to evaluate the direction our leaders are guiding this nation, and to consider how we might best preserve our godly heritage, values, as we prepare to cast a vote next month. World history demonstrates that the United States is incredibly unique. The freedoms we enjoy are unparalleled in human history. 
liberty, and so many other blessings that stem from our founding documents. They stem from documents like the Declaration of Independence and the United States Constitution. I've listed on your outline the preambles to each of these documents. I'd like us to read it, to be refreshed of what the founders of this nation intended it to be like. In the Declaration of Independence, July 4, 1776, the framers wrote, or I should say, the patriots at the time wrote, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed to affect their safety and their happiness. A couple of remarks here on our Declaration of Independence. You'll notice right off the bat, equality. All people created equal. You'll notice the rights that are given to us. By whom? By our Creator, according to the founders. The right to life, the right to liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's been amazing, the evolution of the definition of the pursuit of happiness in the last number of decades. Um, the late Chuck Colson wrote of this clause in our U.S. Constitution, and he hits the nail right on the head. What was the pursuit of happiness as the framers understood it? Quote, Our founding fathers understood the pursuit of happiness to mean the pursuit of a virtuous life. This concept of happiness comes from the Greek word eudaimonia, which refers to a life well lived, a life rooted in truth. That is what happiness means. And that is what every man and woman has. An inalienable right to pursue a virtuous life. Happiness, as the framers understood it, had nothing to do with going off and pursuing whatever kind of lifestyle you desired. That's, what, that's our modern day understanding of it. But the framers took it as the right to pursue virtue. The right to pursue a virtuous life, a moral life, a righteous life. That to secure these rights, governments are made among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed to affect the governed's safety, their defense, and their happiness. Some 11 years later, as we secured our independence, the Constitution was ratified. And in the preamble it states, We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, to establish justice, to ensure domestic tranquility, to provide for the common defense, to promote the general welfare and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves, and our posterity do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. I've underlined here, in each of these two statements, the objectives, the goals, the aims which the founders had as they 
laid the foundation of this nation. On the bottom of your outline there, our nation's historically enumerated objectives, what the founders said was the goal, are all matters of, write this down, ethics. They're all matters of ethics. And so the natural question arises, whose ethics have guided America? And whose will guide us into the future? Equality. The ethic of equality. Life. Liberty. Happiness. Virtue. Safety. Peace. Unity. Justice. General welfare. Each of these statements... Each of the aims, each of the goals, as the framers intended, were about ethics, about morals, about the virtuous life. The preambles to the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution spell out precisely what the Founding Fathers desired this nation to provide its citizens. Questions like, what does it mean to be equal? were questions that concern them. What does it mean to have equal rights as people? What is life? They asked themselves. When does it begin? How should it be preserved? What is a happy or a virtuous life? What is just? What is truth? What is the general welfare? What ought a government to do to promote general welfare? These questions and more speak to fundamental issues of what it means to live in this great nation. These, they are core questions embedded in our founding documents, our charter. And take note, they are questions of ethics, morality. They're questions that can only be answered by an appeal to an ethical standard. Some object, many object, in, in the modern age, postmodern age, many object that religion should have no place in the public square. It's funny. Pray tell, how would science answer the objectives in these preambles? Science, the secularist, the secular humanist, the one who only believes that well, we just, boy, we just came from the dirt and we, we kind of evolved and it just kind of bing bang, it happened. And here we are today. How do they possibly answer these objectives and aims? How do they possibly answer the question of what is just? What is liberty? What is life? What does it mean to be at peace, to have defense? 
Science alone cannot answer these core questions. To interpret our nation's founding documents, you must appeal to an overriding ethic, some prevailing worldview, some ideology that will inform and guide your answers to these questions. And so the question to us in this nation, some 200 plus years since its founding, the question to us is, whose ethic will you appeal to? Whose ethic will you appeal to? Which ideology will you draw upon for insight? What will be the lens through which you see the answers to these core questions? And a Christian, a Christian, needn't wonder very long which standard he or she should appeal to. It's right here. It's right here. It's our charter. As much as the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution is the charter by which we live as citizens of this great nation, it's, it, it, it holds within it the objectives, the aims, most all of which are ethical aims. And so also we have another charter, which interestingly enough was the same document that the vast majority of our nation's founders appealed to as they created this nation. Turn again to Psalm 33, verse 4. Notice the emphasis on the ethical and moral character of God's Word. Verse 4, 33 Psalms. For the Word of the Lord is right All His work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Again, verse 8, Let all the earth therefore fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe. Verse 12, Blessed, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The psalmist is being quite clear. If we are to be a blessed nation, According to Scripture, this goes for the nation of Israel as it did in days of old. It also went for any nation that subscribed to the principles of Scripture. As Billy Graham so eloquently put in his letter, that the people of Nineveh, the superpower of the world, when they turned to the Lord God, God relented of His judgment upon them. And so these words in Psalm 33 are not just good for Israel. They're not just good for pagan Nineveh. They're good for every nation on the face of the earth. If we're to be a blessed nation, we must, according to God's Word, adhere to God's understanding of what is right, what is true, what is just, what is good. And so to do that, to do that, to achieve blessing from God as a nation. It follows that we need to elect leaders. We need to vote on propositions that align ourselves, that align our nation and our nation's ideals with God's ideals. If you want a blessed nation, you want a nation that God would honor, it follows that we must help to lead among us men and women 
who understand what God has to say about righteousness, truth, justice, goodness. But this takes understanding, doesn't it? I wrote on your Allen there on the, on the back side. Voting requires understanding and discernment, doesn't it? It requires first understanding. When you, when you go to the polls, what a privilege, by the way. How few nations have this privilege. And throughout world history, my goodness, we're so unique. Just, just do a study on how many people have been able to vote their leaders in. Uh, you'd probably find it less than 5% in the history of the world. But you have that privilege. I have that privilege. And it, it requires understanding first. You've got to know biblical ethics. You've got to think about them. You've got to put your mind on them. You've got to read God's Word and say, God, what do you value? The framers, they were all about ethics. They wanted life. Liberty, the pursuit of happiness, the virtuous life. All the objectives of this nation were founded on the moral life of the person, of the family, of the nation. And so we turn to God's Word and say, God, what is ethical? What is moral? Will you show me, give me understanding into what your truth is? And it also requires discernment. Discernment of candidates. Um, I don't know if you know this, but politicians sometimes lie. Um, hey, you know, they're fallen men and women. So are we. I, I've lied too. Uh, but candidates, politicians, um, it's hard to know where, to, where they stick on the wall sometimes. You know? Uh, what their positions are. What they believe as we look at propositions on a ballot, we need to know, how do I understand this? How do I prioritize these things? What is more important than perhaps another matter? I want to say, uh, as we get to the issue of perhaps the highest of biblical ethics, I want to say this as we, as we just say a word about candidates and positions. This is my opinion. Um, but I believe it to be well-grounded in common human experience. And that is this on your outline. A vote is not a total endorsement of a candidate or position. Write that down. A vote is not a total endorsement of a candidate or position. Let me give you an example. I, I, Casey married me. And uh, did you know that? Casey married me. I don't know if you know me very well, but I'm not easy to live with. All right. Uh, I like things the way I like it. You know, I I I I, uh, I like watching baseball. I, I like watching football. I, you know, when I get home, I just kind of like yeah, I like to sit on the couch and relax a little bit. I I don't have the the greatest work ethic around the house. I can't fix a darn thing around the house. I, I have a broken kitchen faucet. Anybody want to help me fix it? I would love to talk to you. Okay, after the service. I can't fix anything. Uh, I can be a little lazy at home, but you know, I, I'm okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm a B, B minus. Casey married me. She said, for all your faults, for all the things I can't stand about you, I love you. I'm committed to you. Let's, let's do this life together. She married me, and it, it wasn't a full endorsement of my life. It wasn't, wow, I love those things that Neil does poorly. No, instead it was a commitment to say, you know what, Neil has 
enough of the qualities I was looking for in a husband. Neil has the kinds of things I was looking for in a father, and our, our relationship is strong. It's not perfect, but it's strong. We align well together. We're going to share our lives together. It's kind of like that with political candidates. If you wait to find a, the perfect candidate, you will not find him. You will not find her. Um, so some of you might be wondering, you know, how, but I don't line up on X, Y, and Z, but I line up on A, B, and C. You've got to use discernment. You've got to think through it. Use understanding. Consider that this is not a total endorsement of whomever I'm voting for or whatever I'm voting for, but instead it's a desire given two options, both of which might not be very good. And a lot of you might be thinking that this November. You're looking at two options and you're going, wow, those are my options? Given two options that might not be all that great, nevertheless, a vote is an opportunity for you to align yourself with what you believe to be the closest to God's ideals, the closest to God's priorities. Now, what are those priorities? What are those priorities? Now, this is where it gets tricky. Uh, this, <laughs> this is where Christians, friends, uh, differ all over the place. But I think that there are a few principles upon which we can agree. And I've taken the step of going out on a limb and saying, look, I'm going to order a few things here. As I understand it, as I read God's Word, you may disagree on a few of these, but, and we can have a conversation. I want a conversation. And there might be some things on this that you would say, no, this needs to go higher. No, this needs to go lower. But here are some general guidelines of what God would consider the highest good on your outline. Biblical priorities of the highest order. Number one, the protection of life. Life. Jesus Christ came to earth that we might have life and have it more abundantly. You and I, by faith in Jesus, we don't just live and die in this earth. We go on to an eternity, a life in heaven, in the kingdom of God. Life is of incredible importance to the Lord God and to His Word. It's hard to suggest there's anything more important than it. And in Psalm 139, were you to read it, David describes how God knit him together in his mother's womb. That God fashioned his inward parts. That God was intricately involved in David's very conception and creation. And to, to take that life, to abort that life, to experiment on what can become life in the name of science. These, these kinds of decisions in public policy are to go beyond what Scripture would have us do. Particularly abortion. Um, Last year, 1.3, 1.4 million abortions in the United States of America. That's about 4,000 plus per day. In the time that this message uh, is over, there will have been uh, 200 abortions in the United States. 200. 
I'm sensitive to this matter because I know that if stats are correct, uh, there are probably uh, women in this room who have had an abortion. And uh, to you, I want to say clearly, God loves you. He cares for you. Uh, and He uh, is, has abundant grace and mercy toward you. God loves every woman who's um, had an abortion. And uh, he's, but He wants you to, to come to Him and say, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. He wants to forgive you. He wants to give you a second chance as you deal with this. And I know that those who have gone through an abortion deal with it. The stats are unbelievably clear. The vast majority of women who have an abortion go on to experience great depression, experience great tumult in their life. Um, A lot of consequences that have come with it. And so to you who perhaps have gone down that route early in your life, I want to say God loves you and cares for you and He'll forgive you. But as a church, as a nation... uh, We have lost more than 50 million, perhaps 60 million, that's a conservative estimate, since Roe v. Wade. Uh, In the time that Hitler killed 6 million Jews, uh, we easily uh, killed 6 million children by means of abortion and have gone on to kill some 60 million. This is a big deal. Uh, We can't say it enough. I have a message totally dedicated to abortion. If you want to learn more about this issue, uh, you can go back um, on our website and find it in uh, October of uh, 2008, as a matter of fact. Uh, And we should be really um, rejoicing in ministries like uh, Birth Choice, who, while choice might sound like uh, a term describing another side, Birth Choice is actually a Christian ministry that gives young girls that come out of Saddleback College an opportunity, education, about what they can do with that child. What can we do, friends? We can go down there and and support them, encourage them, help in that ministry. You know what else you can do? is You can uh, be willing, and always willing, to say to someone who's pregnant, Uh, usually in these cases, uh, usually out of wedlock, say to them, you know, if you can't handle it, I'll I'll raise your son. I'll raise your daughter. Uh, Don't give up on this, friends. This is an issue of critical importance. And God, I know, is is, uh, has been deeply saddened by the loss of many children. That's of the highest order. A second highest order business, ethical matter, support of Israel. You might say, well, support of Israel, that that sure seems a far cry from the issue of the protection of life. No, it really isn't. The Bible is replete with admonitions, beginning in Genesis 12, continuing through Psalms and Romans, in which it is said that the nation which blesses Israel, God will bless. It doesn't mean we turn a blind eye to Israel and say you can do whatever you want. You can, uh, you know, some, some, many nations, majority of nations, accuse Israel of gross human rights violations and, uh, and, and the such and, and the like. But we as a nation need to filter through uh, the claims, um, all claims that are out there about uh, the nation of Israel, but to know assuredly that God still has a plan for this nation. He wants the nations of the world to bless her, to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And as you do, 
God's Word says you will find peace. The further we get away from Israel, you will notice a corresponding decline in a nation. Um, It's actually been fascinating to watch the nation of Canada as of late. I've heard many Bible teachers say that the nation of Canada has actually drawn nearer uh, to Israel in support in recent years. And I don't know if you've noticed, but of all the nations in this earth, on this earth today that have uh, kind of weathered the storm of the global uh, economic difficulties, Canada rises far and away to the top. Canada is, is strong, um, perhaps in part due to its support of Israel. Who knows? Um, but the Bible's clear in Genesis 12. The nation that blesses you, I will bless. Do you want to be a blessed nation? Bless Israel. A third issue of the highest order, traditional marriage and family values. And these are key phrases that you've heard before and might seem kind of trite. I can assure you they're not. Let me go back to the issue of abortion for just a moment. Did you know that in 2008, 85%, 85% of abortions were performed on unmarried women. 85% on unmarried women. That tells us that if we care about issue number one, which we do, we should care about issue number three. Because you see, it is in the marriage unit. It is in the union between a man and a woman. As the Bible and as Jesus has outlined and affirmed, it is within that union that God offers the most protection, the most blessing. When we get outside of that union, when we go outside of God's blessing, when we get pregnant out of wedlock, when we use our sexuality in ways that is a perversion of what God intended, there are consequences the, the, the litmus of sexual diseases, is it not evident of that? Is it not self-evident that the traditional understanding of marriage is to be preferred? Read Romans 1. You will see of God, uh, Paul, speaking on behalf of the Lord, just lamenting the fact that His wrath is coming on those who pervert what He designed in marriage, who pervert what He designed in, uh, to be as a biblical view of sexuality. These are of the highest order, I would argue. These three. But there are other biblical priorities. And I want to speak to them too. Number four is protection and provision for the poor and needy. Protection and provision for the poor and needy. I want you to read Psalm 72 at home. We don't have time today. But in Psalm 72, Solomon is admonished as the king. Solomon is admonished over and over again, protect, protect, protect the poor, protect the needy, protect the oppressed, supply for them, provide for them, be their defender. Uh, Christians can, can differ on this matter, on what that looks like to protect and provide for the poor. We, there, there's different ways of doing that. I recognize that. But the one thing is clear. God, in Psalm 72, is telling the king, you watch out for the less fortunate as a nation. Israel as a nation in Psalm 72 was instructed. Her king was told, you take care of the poor. You encourage them. You lift them up. Now that can happen too through the church. And quite frankly, usually it's done best through the church, I find. 
It's also said in Scripture, though, that, that uh, we, we can't just keep all those who are poor and needy um, in that realm with no encouragement to get out of it. The Scriptures speak of the fact that the man who won't work, he shouldn't eat. According to Paul and Timothy, if you're not going to work, Paul says you're not going to eat. And so as we help the poor, as we provide for the poor and the needy, we also lift them up out of it. Not keep them in it. But that is a huge biblical priority and should be a consideration as we vote, as we go to the polls. Five, religious freedom and conscience protection. This is kind of a... You might think, really? Is this a, is this a large matter of biblical importance? I think it is. Um, I think it is in our day in America. And the reason I think it is is because the day is coming, friends, and it now is in which uh, the tolerance of religious freedom is at an all-time low. Did you know that our own government in May of this year, uh, our own government opposed legislation that would protect military chaplains from performing a same-sex marriage ceremony that they did not wish to perform? In other words, when the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell was enacted, it was also told to military chaplains, given instructed to military chaplains, that now that uh, the homosexual community had been admitted into the armed forces, um, now, as that has happened, so also you as chaplains must provide for them all religious services, including performing marriages for them, regardless of conscience, regardless of conviction. This is a big deal, friends. Uh, if I was a military chaplain today and I was asked to uh, conduct a homosexual wedding, I would have to, in the spirit of Peter and John in the early parts of Acts, look at them and say, I'm sorry, I cannot do this. Consequences are coming for chaplains who maintain that posture. Those consequences are already here in nations like Sweden in many parts of Europe, where pastors are being imprisoned for refusing to marry homosexual couples. If you don't think religious freedom and conscience protection is an important issue, uh, you need to wake up. Our faith is of critical importance. The religious freedom of all is of critical importance. And conscience protection should be a priority. The Bible speaks so often of it, actually, in Romans 14 and 15. Paul speaks so openly and honestly about, hey, you know what? Show respect for each other. Don't do things that would offend one another. Now, he's not using Romans 14 and 15 as direction toward nations, but the issue in Scripture is quite clear. Jesus never compelled people to the faith. God doesn't compel people to come to Christianity. He gives them choice. He gives them freedom. We have free will. And so also in this nation, if we are to uphold that ideal of free will, we need to afford religious freedom and conscious protection. That's one of the reasons why we did a constitutional amendment here at Coast outlining our thoughts on homosexual marriage and indicating that, uh, that we, we could not condone such unions. Sixth and finally, debt. Proverbs 22.7 reads, The rich rules over you and the borrower is servant to the lender. I, I, I can't think of a, uh, an issue that's risen more in, in recent years 
And I tell you, both, both sides are such at fault. We're all at fault. We're a culture of borrowing. Um, so many of us can tell stories of credit card debt. Some of us are still in it. Um, I've got student loans more than I would ever care to admit. Um, debt, debt, debt. Our nation has been accumulating debt. And whether it's on the right or on the left, these presidents and these leaders have been racking up the debt such that we are becoming enslaved to it. Look again at the Declaration of, of Independence. Look again uh, excuse me, at the U.S. Constitution to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. The framers said we want something that will last for our children and children's children. And if we don't get a hold of what's happening in this nation on debt, in this state on debt, we will be crippled. And we will be incapable, by the way, of doing things like supporting Israel, which is a chief priority of a biblical Christian. So these six items, friends, these are just six. There can be more, and let's have a dialogue about some more things. But some initial guides, guidelines for you to take with you as you consider your role in November. There are many other issues too. And you know, it's funny, the hot topics of the day, usually the Bible has such so little things to say about it. Issues like taxes. There were times in the Scriptures where the people rose up and said, you're taxing us too much. Uh, but, but tax methodology and how much is too much, all these kinds of things that we get riled up about, the Scriptures have very little to say about. Entitlements, education, defense spending, health care. You would be hard-pressed uh, to find the Scriptures taking a strong and unnuanced position on these kinds of things. We can have dialogues on them, but I would submit to you they are not of a Tier 1 priority as we've outlined, nor of even a Tier 2 priority as we've outlined. So consider these things. Above all, what would Jesus say about voting? You know, a couple things He would say. Number one, you will not change culture by law. Paul speaks uh, elsewhere in his letters that you know one day marriage will be forbidden. That's a prophecy of the Apostle Paul. One day they'll forbid to marry. You think to yourself, wow, what a statement. We fight so hard for... Uh, you know, we have Prop 8 in California. And is it going to go to the Supreme Court? We're, we're, we're trying to fight on, can it be just man and woman? Can it, can it be included to include more? At the end of the day, friends, you're not going to change culture by law. Period. You change culture by the Gospel. You change people's hearts, not through policies, and not through presidents, not through governors, not through propositions. You change hearts through the church through people indwelt in by the Holy Spirit of God. Franklin Graham writes, let us, not, let us also not forget that elections and politics are temporal. Elections do matter, but our citizenship is in heaven. Lasting change comes not from political parties, but from the power of the Gospel. Amen? November uh, 6 is an important day. I've got views myself on which candidates might be more aligned with biblical values. I've given you some guides for you to consider. Um, but above all, you need to go to the Word. You need to be a person who understands God's ethics and shows discernment. Shows discernment. 
between candidates, between positions. You know these things you get in the mail? These things that you uh, throw away in the mail, I should say? Don't throw it away. Karl Barth would say, (laughs) read your newspaper and read your Bible, but interpret the newspaper through the lens of Scripture. These things are important, friends, but they need to be read through the lens of Scripture. So, do your due diligence this November. Vote the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love our nation. We're so glad to be a part of it. and We want it to be protected and preserved. God, would You bless America? Would You guide America? Would You show us the way forward? We're, we're concerned, God. We look around and we see a deterioration, a degradation of Your values, of life, of the family, of things that are so near and dear to Your heart. God, help us to be understanding of Your ethics, Your morals, what You would do. That we might be a nation who can be called blessed. Help us, God, as we consider how best to have helped this nation and affect it, not only through a vote in November, but more importantly, not just by law and policy or by a candidate in an office, but most importantly, God, let us affect it by the testimony of our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.